the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. Thursday, December 7th, 2023. I am Seth It's Good to see you, Mr. Bill. Good to see you, David Dahl and Miss Terry. You're all here. I should like to talk about preemptive cultural and national surrenders for a moment. For us today, they are surrenders not just of conservatism and the Republican Party. They are surrenders of our country, preemptive surrenders of America. And these surrenders mostly come from a party that used to own the franchise on patriotism and didn't define patriotism by enthusiasm and compliance for wearing medical masks and broadcasting public fear and illness. There are today fewer than 120,000 World War II veterans alive. My dad was one of them until he passed about nine years ago. I remark on the World War II point, given today being December 7th, famously a day that was supposed to live in infamy, because as on September 11th, 2001, evil and good were amazingly, starkly, clearly revealed. The analogs to October 7th flow forward as well. In 2001, two months ago and now, we have self-doubt about such judgments regarding good and evil. In a better and stronger America in the 1940s, we had no such confusion. It wasn't sewed into the fabric of our culture before it was shredded by the pseudo-sophisticates of today. The revelation that there is good and evil as it came to us so terribly on September 11th lasted about a month. The revelation 82 years ago lasted a great deal longer. 82 years ago, plus one day, a Democratic president could stand before a joint session of Congress and say, quote, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us, close quote. Note the use of the word righteous. That was not a strange or unique word describing how we thought about ourselves 80 or so years ago. Today, I can't imagine a Democratic Party leader speaking of America as righteous. How could one? We are systematically racist. We are filled with deplorables. We are arrogant. And you can't say that we want to make our country great or great again. Democratic presidents now go around the world apologizing for America, not speaking to other nations or ourselves about our decency, much less righteousness. Did we have race problems back then, even as we knew ourselves to be a great country, if not the greatest country ever? You bet. Big ones. Bigger than we have now, obviously. This was all before the Civil Rights Acts by a little more than two decades. When the boxer Joe Lewis enlisted to fight in World War II, a friend said to him, It's a white man's army, Joe. It ain't a black man's army. Joe Lewis looked at him, didn't blink an eye, and explained his decision, quote, Lots of things wrong with America, but Hitler ain't going to fix any of them, close quote. We understood how to make judgments back then in a less equal and more racist America. Winston Churchill, too, understood us well back then. In his memoirs, 
of World War II. This is how he wrote of his thoughts on the night of December 7th, 1941. Quote, At this very moment, I knew the United States was in the war, up to the neck and into the death. So we had won, after all. Yes, after Dunkirk, after the fall of France, after the horrible episode of Iran and the threat of invasion, we had won the war. England would live. Britain would live. The Commonwealth of Nations and the Empire would live. How long the war would last or in what fashion it would end, no man could tell, nor did I at this moment care. We should not be wiped out. Our history would not come to an end. We might not even have to die as individuals. Hitler's fate was sealed. Mussolini's fate was sealed. As for the Japanese, they would be ground to powder. Many disasters, immeasurable cost, and tribulations lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. Close quote. He knew once America was attacked, this is what he's writing in his memoirs, the war was over, or would be over. He continued, quote, Silly people, and there were many, not only in enemy countries, might discount the force of the United States. Some said they were soft, others that they would never be united. They would fool around at a distance. They would never come to grips. They would never stand bloodletting. Their democracy and system of recurrent elections would paralyze their war effort. They would be just a vague blur on the horizon to friend or foe. Now now we should see the weakness of this numerous but remote, wealthy, and talkative people. But I had studied the American Civil War, fought on to the last desperate inch. American blood flowed in my veins. And I thought a remark of a remark which Edward Gray, former British Secretary of State, had made to me more than 30 years before, that the United States is like a gigantic boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there is no limit to the power it can generate. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. Close quote. You feel like we're still that gigantic boiler these days? You think we are a culture that believes there is no limit to the power we can generate? Or do you think rather we are so filled and consumed with self-doubt and moral relativism and misplaced and misdirected self-critique and criticism that we don't even think we have a right to speak of, much less exercise our power anymore? When Ronald Reagan left office, his final message to the American people from the Oval Office included this line, quote, Younger parents aren't sure that an unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children, close quote. As Charles Kessler pointed out, the children of those ambivalent parents have grown up and begun to have families of their own, usually with fewer children. The growing uncertainty about the country now extends in many cases to the second and third generation of her puzzled citizens. Is it any wonder that a nation torn between loathing and loving itself seems sometimes to be on the verge of a nervous breakdown? The American people hardly know what to think about America anymore. Good thing Joe Lewis didn't have a daughter in postmodern American schools. Good thing Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill weren't educated in the postmodern schools of America. Good thing most Americans weren't. So today... 
as Sir Thomas More said in A Man for All Seasons, I show you the times. The times of an education of an education system that knows or claims to know more about this country than people who actually grew up and suffered for it and didn't have to study history from pseudo sophisticates because they were in it of it. They made our history. When Winston Churchill died in uh, 1965, Professor Leo Strauss, my teacher, Harry Jaffa's teacher, was told as he was about to deliver a lecture to his students at the University of Chicago. Extemporaneously, this is what Professor Strauss said. His students wrote down what he said verbatim. So there's a record of everything he taught. Strauss said this, The death of Churchill is a healthy reminder to academic students of political science, a reminder of their limitations, the limitations of their craft. The tyrant stood at the pinnacle of his power. The contrast between the indomitable and magnanimous statesman and the insane tyrant, this spectacle and its clear simplicity was one of the greatest lessons which men can learn at any time. The death of Churchill reminds us of the limitations of our craft and therewith of our duty. For we have no higher duty and no more pressing duty than to remind ourselves and our students of political greatness, human greatness, of the peaks of human excellence. For we are supposed to train ourselves and others in seeing things as they are. And this means above all in seeing their greatness and their misery, their excellence and their vileness, their nobility and their triumphs, and therefore never to mistake mediocrity, however brilliant, for true greatness. In our age, this duty demands of us in the first place that we liberate ourselves from the supposition that value statements cannot be factual statements. Close quote. We don't have teaching like that anymore because we don't have teachers like that anymore, and we don't have thoughts like that anymore. And thus we no longer are able to distinguish between tyranny and freedom, good and evil, greatness and misery. And yeah, all we do now is run down the values and aspirations to those values that made us so great and made us and others think of us uh, as great just not that long ago. I'll say a little bit more about this when we come back. Meantime, 602-508-0960 if you'd like to join us. We'll be right back. It's got to be Chicago. I told you you'd like it. Maybe. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it started off better. Started yeah. off great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lila Hain on trumpet there. Uh, given what I was talking about in the previous segment, I'll get to calls in a moment. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Given all this confusion of right and wrong and good and evil, particularly when it comes to war, culture, America, all this vitiation of what constitutes racism, uh, what constitutes fascism, defining evil things downwards and upwards beyond their prioritizations, leads us to really need what the novelist Tom Wolfe once called a great relearning. And in that relearning, we should recall, of course, how awful war is. No question about it. Thinking about December 7th, thinking about September 11th, thinking about October 7th. How awful war is. We have to 
be consumed with what we can do to avoid it. But when one side deprecates war and another would make war rather than let a nation survive, if I can channel Abraham Lincoln, a war will come and it will be awful. And it needs to be discerned what the war is about and who stands for what on which side, what the end of each side's victory will look like, would look like, would spell for the present as well as the future, and who started it. We see the need for this kind of rudimentary thinking, need of thinking today. But on this day, 82 years ago, 2,400 Americans were killed by the Imperial Japanese. The Allies in the war that attack brought on would end up killing over 2 million Japanese. The number for Germans, between 6 and 8 million. Evil needed to be eradicated, and Pake Roosevelt we aimed to ensure, as Roosevelt said, that this form of treachery would never threaten the civilized world again. Well, it didn't, at least not from Japan or Germany, because it was thought fought through to an overwhelming victory, because we fought, as Roosevelt said, to our uttermost. We fought those wars the massive retaliation and defeat of the enemy who would blow out all the moral lights had they won. And all I ask is this. Next time someone mentions or bewails proportionality in the Middle East today, think about those numbers and take some repose that Israel is not, in fact, acting proportionally. It is acting far below proportionality against its own existential enemies, and in comparison to America's sense of proportionality after December 7th in ridding the world of Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany, it's not even close. Okay, that's what I wanted to get out. Let's go to your calls. Lance is in Phoenix. Hello, Lance. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Well, uh, the reason for my uh, call is I... uh uh, watched a PBS special uh, with um, Judy Woodruff, if that's how you pronounce her name. Yeah. And, um, you know, three years after the fact of COVID, you know, I guess almost four years, if you want to think about the first cases, um, I was just perplexed that they're still uh, trouting out that, in my mind, it, the fact that they have to come out and say all these anti-facts that we talked about all over the past few years, means that they're, new, they're losing the, um, the war of the narrative, and they're completely rewriting history. I rewatched the segment twice, and I wrote down to make sure I did not misunderstood. Um, so she quoted, and I would encourage you to find her, her COVID special from last night or the day before. Uh, she quoted um, an anti-COVID vaccine person. She quoted this person saying, and it was in her voice, she says, although there were no federal mandates for vaccines, there were some state vaccines and some, uh, I wanted to quote it, unofficial mandates by employers and doctor's offices. So she, I'm guessing, completely misquoted someone. Uh, and if she did correctly quote the person, it was completely and utterly false. 
And she didn't correct that he was wrong. She just rolled with it that there were no federal COVID-19 vaccines, and there were only unofficial uh, uh, employer and doctor offices mandates, whatever unofficial It's, it's just means. not true, as you know. There was, of course, what, the federal civilian other... employees. There was the military mandates. Yeah, she said no federal. Yeah, but yeah it's just you not true. You could do the military. Yeah. You could do OSHA. Yeah. Um, and I, I, know, I know. But also every federal civilian employee was under a mandate. Absolutely. And I know people, I know almost 10 people who were fired uh, over this topic. Uh, and they never, you know, if we want to, we, we should take up the mantle of uh, reparations. Uh, <laughs> that should be our, our cause, reparations for, for every person who was ill-gottenly fired. Uh, their employer should have to pay them all the back wages times three. Uh, that should be the reparation law we should promote. All their back wages times three, the employer has to pay. Uh, you know, maybe the government pays half, the employer pays half. Um, uh, but I just couldn't believe, uh, and when she wanted to discredit the guy that was against COVID ma- vaccine mandates, she, she's like, he's a Trump supporter. <laughs> like, okay, but that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, and then she's like, and he works with an organization that works with, uh, Michael Flynn, who denies the 2020 election. Yeah, that's, like, well, that's, that's relevant. That's, of course, that's, relevant. It was, yeah, it was yes, so relevant to mention he was a Trump fan, yeah. and it was so relevant that he works with an organization that works with Michael Flynn. Yeah. Who denied Did they mention the, Michael Flynn, my, the same Michael Flynn who works with Habitat for Humanity? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, they can play this game all day long. I, I do have one question for you, and I hadn't thought deeply about this just yet, but I am. You said every employer— should be sued for back pay. Wouldn't you charge? Wouldn't you charge the states rather than the employers? The employers may not have had choices. In some respects. Well, I I would say um, the employers that I know that fired most of these people. Yeah. Um, they were giddy. Oh, they I were, know what you're talking about. I do. They were giddy. I do. Yeah. So the mandate did not actually take effect. Uh, I mean, yeah. maybe I'm off a couple weeks here. But I believe the Supreme Court basically made a stay uh, and then struck it down. So it didn't truly fully go into effect. So all the employers, and I'm talking about a lot of the medical, mm-hmm. the banners, mm-hmm. uh, the, the honor help, mm-hmm. the so-and-so, mm-hmm. they were giddy to fire their employees um, over this. So it was really not a push to shove. Everyone knew this was going to the Supreme Court, and you might as well wait the two weeks that was the difference. Uh, so the fact they were they were they were gleeful and giddy to fire these. So I say they they absolutely hold uh, uh, accountability, and then they should split the cost between them and the government because the government's also at fault. I got to run. And that's what Bless we you. need: reparation. Thank you. Thank you, Lance. Thank you, Leanne Rhymes. Thank you, Mr. David Dahl, for doing that. Your mom continues to be okay and her colleagues at UNLV, yes? Well, um, aside from the, the tra- yeah, yes, I mean, aside from the, the trauma of it all, yeah. We're colleagues. Yeah, that's all a of fair the point. victims in the shooting that's were a fellow fair faculty. Point. But yes, she's all right. She's at home. Uh, school's still shut down, so she's off. They're having finals next week, which will probably be pushed all online. It yeah. was a handgun. Mm-hmm. Nine mil. It was a nine millimeter. 
So a ban on assault rifles or assault weapons wouldn't do anything here. Isn't that the truth? And that's exactly what President Biden put out a statement saying yesterday. And the shooter has George Soros as one of the great minds of the 20th century. I just I'm just wondering how they're going to spin this one. Yeah. Yeah. I hope they don't spin it at all. These things should not be subject to political spin. You know, I'm glad your mom is doing well, though. As am I. Yeah. I'm glad you all are. What a terrible close thing that was. She was in the building. David's mom was yeah, in I, the I don't, building. Like to, I don't know how many details I can give out, but yeah, she was. Uh, it took place on the fourth floor of a building she was in, and she told me though that uh, he obviously had some retribution yeah. in his heart because Something. somehow he knew that they were all going to be meeting in that building today. There were approximately eight hundred students in this building for a uh, presentation fair, yeah. as you might uh, have at the collegiate level, yeah. and there were several dozen staff, including her, and many, many students. She said she felt like a mother hen with 300 young sure. students sure. getting them out of there. Sure. That, that, is, that is such a gr- job of great heroism. I remember um, in Blacksburg at, when Virginia Tech, when the shooting in Virginia t- Tech took place, wouldn't that have been 2005? Does that sound about right? Virginia Tech. And... Um, there was one particular professor. There's always heroes. You can always, yeah, you can always find these, these deranged. But oh seven. There's always it was oh seven. There were all. There's always heroes. And the name of the hero I'll never forget is Livu Labrescu. It's a math teacher at Virginia Tech. Livu Labrescu, who. Uh, was a concentration camp survivor from World War Two. And um, when the shooter came to his classroom, he body blocked the door with his body and yelled at his students to run out and flee through the windows. And he saved his students, but not himself. He was aged and older, and it just dawned on me, you know, the way the world works. This is a man who could survive Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany, right, but couldn't survived the derangement of a 20-year-old in Virginia. But he gave his life to saving his students' lives. And, you know, the Bible has a verse for that. Other than that, words fail, right? No greater love, David? Is that right? (laughs) Getting me on the spot here. No greater love than he who will lay down his life for that of another. Mm, And... um, and it's important that we that we remember those heroes too. We kind of we kind of we kind of play games with the word hero. We sometimes get into a funk where we say there are no heroes anymore. We kind of deride the idea of heroes in our quest for all the boys being, you know, Lake Wobegani and all the girls being Lake Wobegani, where everyone's above average or a little better than average. But heroes are important, and it's important we recognize them. There were heroes on December 7th. There were heroes in every war. There are heroes every day. You know what we've done? We... we we used to have entire classes of profession that are heroic, the military, usually. 
police, firefighters, usually. We've taken, outside of perhaps the firefighters, we've taken those categories, the military. Boys used, young boys used to want to grow. What do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? G.I. Joe, you know, a soldier, a policeman. They love to play cops and robbers. You can't play cops and robbers anymore. And we wonder why they don't know the difference between right and wrong when they're older. Heroism is important, and we need to bring heroes back. I'll be right back. Are global leaders developing solutions that promote freedom and quality of life, or are they creating problems and forcing solutions that only benefit the elite? Midas Gold Group believes it's the latter, from draconian COVID restrictions, the decimation of small business, and change election laws. Midas believes your finances will be next. Under the guise of protecting you, you'll get monetary expansion, national debt, and reduced purchasing power. And their central bank digital currency will virtually eliminate your savings and purchasing privacy. The answer? Convert a portion of your savings or IRA to physical gold and silver. Precious metals are a private currency. They've been used to store wealth throughout history. Thousands of you have trusted the Midas Gold Group for many years now as they're fighting for your financial freedom. Call the Midas Gold Group at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or check them out at MidasGoldGroup.com, the only precious metals dealer Seb Gorka and I use and trust. Just got an interesting text. Many of you who uh, remember listening to the old Bill Bennett show or listen to his podcast, know his producer or know of his producer, Claude Jennings. He just, uh, you know Claude Bill, right? You've dealt with him. Um, he um, he just sent me a text that he's celebrating Hanukkah. And uh, I said, well, that's touching. How come? He said, I just thought it was important this year. It reminded me of, you know, David Dahl went to shul and uh, Christina, uh, our fan, who took Dennis Prager's suggestion seriously to put up a mezuzah. I can't say how much it means. I wish I had words when people do this sort of thing. It's, It's just so unbelievably touching. I had mentioned the other day this is why, and I'll have more to say about it later as it develops, but this is why... um, a couple of us are uh, are working on an effort here, a program, to um, say one big great thank you to all the non-Jews, um, the righteous uh, Christians who have stood up uh, for Jews against anti-Semitism and for Israel over the last uh, couple of months. They have, of course, been doing so over the last many, many decades here in this country, but the especial emotional motion it has uh, meant to Jewish Americans over the last two months is something else again, something else again. So we want to do a big thank you to Christian America. Jews would not be safe in this country but for Christians. And Israel would not be able to survive in the world but for the grace and decency. People who aren't just Jews. And 
anti-Semitism would not be a scourge today were it not for righteous Gentiles. So we, we, we're working on an effort here to do a big thank you from some prominent Jewish Americans to the Christian community. I'll keep you posted on it. Um, prominent members in the Jewish American community as a big thank you to people in the non-Jewish community, in the Christian community, who are prominent and not prominent. Saying attributed to Gandhi, what you do may not seem to be important, but it's very important that you do it. Just these kinds of gestures, they, they leave one speechless. I was speaking of heroism in traditional precincts a segment or so ago, and I mentioned the police used to be the police force becoming a policeman. It used to be a venerated industry of heroism. Um, we've downgraded and debased that. We don't even let kids dress up or play. And I'm sure the G.I. Joe doll is no longer a G.I. Joe doll. I'm sure of it, or action figure. Ryan Williams, my uh, boss at the Claremont Institute, he's the president of the Claremont Institute, along with Kevin Roberts of the Heritage Foundation and Terry Schilling, have an important piece in Newsweek on the military part of all of this. The U.S. military went woke. Time to make some changes at the top. Couldn't agree more. The war in Ukraine and Israel's response to the October 7 terrorist attack signals a worldwide turn away from U.S. leadership. While direct involvement in either conflict seems unlikely, U.S. troop deployments to the Middle East continue, and two U.S. carrier strike groups have formed a naval bubble around Israel. The Marine Corps Central Command even canceled its heralded Marine Corps ball due to operational commitments. Heightened tensions come as the window of American leadership and accompanying global stability appear at risk of closing. Domestic instability among our European allies has compromised their ability to contribute to wars in their own backyard. Wise or not, every significant rival of America judges now to be a good time to test American leadership. Russian aggression in Ukraine, Chinese posturing toward Taiwan, and Iranian attacks on Americans signal the deterrent power of the American military is not what it once was. As the Biden administration fumbles, the rest of the world is turning against or away from America. Conservatives must lead a refounding of the American military to embrace the possibility that war may be on the horizon. Too often, Americans hear a bipartisan chorus declaring the military a melting pot or mirror of civilian society. In this vein of rhetoric, the military's purpose is to reflect the country's demographic trends and be hospitable to the de rigueur conception of civil rights. This reflects what the Harvard historian Samuel Huntington in The Soldier in the State described as the tension between the functional imperative of the military to fight and win our nation's wars— and the social imperative to embrace the politics and ideologies of civil society. Huntington argued rightly that the military's adherence to its functional imperative demands an absolute adherence to merit and to the people, policies and programs that make the military more lethal and effective. In 1870-71, for example, the Germans defeated a French army that had an excellent reputation and tremendous resources. 
But decades of politicalized French high command officials left the army without competent leadership, and the nation suffered a humiliating defeat. The crisis of merit spurred a century-long cycle of French military losses. Today's American military has fully embraced the social imperatives of the left and the most progressive aspects of American society. I'll continue their piece in Newsweek when we come back. It seems just about now rightly timed and perfectly timed. And regardless of where you are on foreign interventions or not, it seems to me you should be four square in favor of a strong U.S. military. For the stronger the U.S. military, the less likely the need for an intervention. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Y-Refi. They have a secure investment, and it actually helps people. With Y-Refi, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. And the investment is not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. A lot of flexibility. You're in control. You can turn your income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like. Absolutely no fees. And there's no attack on principle if you ever need your money Back. You get a monthly statement and no surprises. This is a secure and collateralized portfolio that may be a better option for you than where you have your money now. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24. Did you know that Jose Feliciano is still alive, young David? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Yeah, and you know who else is still alive? Who? We were just talking about him the other day. A lot of people. Ray Anthony. Oh, would you stop with Ray Anthony? Okay, well, we still haven't figured out who's playing horn it's, on that. I, I'm sure it's Herb Alpert. I'm sure. We're sure of it? I'm, oh, it's got to be. Are we super sure? Well, the timing makes sense, and there just weren't a lot of people doing that kind of sound then. Uh, yeah, you got that right. It, it, it would have been right after... His Lonely Bull album. Anyway, I was reading to you from Ryan uh, Williams' U.S. Military Went Woke in Newsweek. The U.S. Air Force selects officers based on a race and sex-based quota system for officer applicants, an affirmative action program that would make the Ivy League blush. In August, the U.S. Army Special Ops Command released a report on women in combat, not to analyze the effectiveness of Army Special Ops forces, but to excoriate itself for supposed persistent bigotry. Earlier this year, Army officials released a memo making soldiers undergoing gender transition non-deployable for almost one year. At a time of severe readiness concerns, such a concession to ideology is absurd. The military should not be in the business of accommodating social ideology if it means accepting non-deployability. Each of these examples and countless others Each of these and countless others embody the faulty assumption that the military must reflect the society it is built to protect. That assumption is pernicious because the 20th century armed forces that won two world wars was built on a theory of separation from society. William Sherman, Jack Pershing, George Marshall formed a tradition of military leadership built on ruthless standards of military competence and near indifference to political pressures and social concerns. 
They built and led armies with global success, and we should recall their approach to civil military relations and policymaking and oversight. See a few callers on hold. Bear with or call back in a half hour, please. I will be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 